This week on Writers, Inc. And I think that, again, that's part of the peril of outlining, that you take away that discovery that is so human. Um, And the same principle answers a lot of questions about how much backstory to introduce and so on. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, uh, next Corvette you're going after, what year? <laughs> oh, man, I'm, I'm bummed. So my, my neighbor, and not the evil neighbor, this is one of our, our good neighbors, um, he, he had a, 69, or a 68 Corvette that he bought new you know, like right, right out of the showroom and he's had it his entire life. Um, the guy's in his seventies now. And like, I, I see him wheel this thing out like every spring and he's out there washing it in the driveway and polishing it and everything. And he sold it and and it's killing me. Like I, I, I could, I could kind of tell, like I, the last time like he rolled it out about a week ago and he was just out there, you know, like just, he washed it and he waxed it and then he was taking pictures of it. And then he just kind of walked around and did a couple of laps. I'm like, Holy crap. I think he might actually be getting rid of it. And then like 10 minutes later, some guy rolled up in another car and you could just tell by the way that they were looking at it that that's what was going on oh. um and i'm like i'm i i i wanted to email him and, and like hey how much are you asking for it um you know because like i would buy that thing in a heartbeat but the problem is i don't need a corvette <laughs> i don't i don't <laughs> drive my i don't drive my <laughs> existing does? car yeah, exactly. yeah like like my car's been sitting in my garage for you know because of this pandemic thing like I've, I've got the same tank of gas now for like six months and and his biggest complaint with the thing is you know he it's just not that reliable anymore it doesn't have a lot of mileage it's only got like thirty thousand, but you know it's an old car you know, so every spring when he rolls it out, something's wrong that he's got to fix. And there's a very limited pool of people that can actually work on it because nobody understands how to fix a car anymore without a computer attached to it. Uh, so it's just turned into this big headache. But what I don't get is he's got two grown sons and you would think one of them would have stepped up just to keep it in the family. Um, and and I, I'm guessing that he probably didn't want me to buy it just because it would be right across the street. And that would be weird, too, because, you know, like he would be staring. You know, there's there's dirt on the fender. Like, how did that happen? Yeah. You know, come walking. I'd catch him washing it in my driveway or something. That's an added pressure for you, too. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, I'm kind of glad that it sold as fast as it did, because if it was sitting out there for like a week or two with a for sale sign on it, like I would have probably ended up buying it and and (laughs) expanding our garage that we're putting up to to create one more bay for for a toy I do not need. (laughs) Zach, do you need this Corvette? I just think JD's thinking is a little short-sighted and pessimistic. He was like... Well, because of the pandemic, my car's been in the garage. Dude, pandemic's not going to last forever. You should have bought that Corvette. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, don't, him, I don't know that it's a road trip car. You no, know, like I, it, I told him to tell his wife it's an investment. Yeah. yeah. That's a leave my wife and kid at home car and go for a drive. <laughs> Trust me. I had the pro and con column. Like I, there, there was, like, I was making a list of all the reasons to, to buy this car and... Yeah, I, I just need it to forget about it. would be weird, though, to be across the street. Yeah. And, like, there would... that I could see how that would create some awkwardness. I, I, honestly, that was the, the main reason why yeah, I, I, I just didn't, I didn't step up, because that, that would have been odd. 
So now I'm going to buy a different Corvette and put it out there and be like, <laughs> well, I got this one instead, asshole. <laughs> but, uh, oh, nice. Anyway, and if there, if you guys hear any noise, like uh, I, we've got a porch going up right outside my window, and these guys picked right now to, to start hammering and sawing and drilling and doing all of the fun, noisy stuff. Yeah, so, we haven't had construction noise in a while, so it's, it's, it's nice to have it back. Well, we're we're doubling down. It's springtime. <laughs> we got to finish this stuff up. Nice. Well, we got a uh, we got a great interview today. So let's let's knock out some of our business oriented stuff, and then we can we can talk about that. I uh, just want a reminder: um, if you listen to to yesterday's episode, it was our first Patreon live Q and A. So uh, we've recently changed up the pa- how we're doing Patreon. And if you go to the writers uh, Patreon dot com slash Writers Inc Podcast. You can get an invite and come on the show with us and ask your question. So uh, just a quick reminder on that. Uh, we, I think we also have some podcast-related stuff we wanted to talk about. Kind of. I, I saw this article um, right before we jumped on. It, it looks like Apple is opening up a subscription service for podcasts, so they're going to allow people like us to charge listeners to listen to their podcast. Um, I, I know as a consumer, I would probably never, ever do this. Like, I can't imagine paying for a, a podcast, um, as, as crass as that may, may be to say. I, it's just, you know, there's so much good entertainment out there that's free. You know, like, wh- what's the point? You know, like, we, we could throw commercials on our podcast if we wanted to, if we wanted to monetize it. And, you know, there's obviously a million different ways to do that. So I'm just, I'm not sure that that's going to fly, but you know, who knows? I mean, kudos to them for, for putting it out there and trying. I'm, I'm pretty sure you can already do that with Spotify. Um, I was going to dig into that. I just didn't have a chance to look. Yeah, I, it kind of baffled me. What do you think, Zach? You've been podcasting for a while. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's worth trying. And they, I, w- I would think that Apple probably has some data that says like it could work, maybe. But I mean, I'm with JD. Like, it just it's something that's been free for so long, and I, I personally just I, I don't feel like that's the way to monetize a podcast. I mean, I think that it's kind of a a structure that's set up and understood, you know, I think it's one thing to have to subscribe to something like Spotify and it be included and it be exclusive to that or whatever. But I don't know. It just, it seems like a really, really weird thing. And, you know, um, and like JD, I don't, that, I mean, I'm, I, it would take a really, really, really good podcast for me to actually pay to subscribe well, to it just you because, know- Th- yeah. There are some like Peter Atia's Drive podcast has a premium subscription where you pay to get like the extra or the behind the scenes. Like I think that's that, di- I, that's, that is different. I don't I'm, think that's what you. Apple's doing though, right? Yeah, and, and I know some podcasts. You know, they'll use like Patreon, and you'll be get like an ad free version or like uh, one of the podcasts I really like, The Minimalist. You know, they do a longer version of their podcast for Patreon. Um, so I think there's ways to do that, but just like as the basic barrier to entry, it just seems like kind of a, I don't know, a weird thing. Yeah, honestly, the only, I mean, if you think about it, like television's been free forever, um, and, and how many subscription services are each of us paying for at this point? So there, you know, there is a market for this sort of thing, but, you know, like, like you guys just kind of touched on it, it's got to be a, a premium version of whatever. I mean, you've, you've got to somehow make it worthwhile to to do that, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure how they can do that yet with a podcast, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, you pay for convenience, right? So, like, if you don't want to yeah. watch broadcast TV, you want to watch it on demand, you pay for that convenience, but... The podcast is already on demand, so <laughs> there's no value add to charging for it. I don't. Well, here's think. the other thing too. I think the last number I heard was that there's like seven million podcasts out there. I could be wrong, but I think I heard that number. There's not that many TV shows or channels, or <laughs> like there's a lot more choice for people just to go find something else. Yeah. yeah. The, well, the cost barrier to entry is so much lower. Yeah. 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 
Well, um, podcast-related news, uh, friend of the show, wonderful writer, Stephanie Bond, is uh, in the process of rolling out a serialized fiction podcast daily. It's called Coma Girl. We'll have a link in the show notes. Very intrigued by this. Uh, she, she has a, a narrator. She's doing some, some of her own stuff on the front and back end of it. And all the episodes are like five or ten minutes long. And um, it's a serialized story with a beginning and end, um, and it comes out every day. And uh, she's, she's, I think she said she's about to crack the top 100 on fiction podcasts on Apple. So it's, it's definitely uh, worth a listen and uh, very intriguing because I think we're going to see more of that kind of stuff. Is she narrating herself? I don't think she's narr- – no, she has a, a, a narrator, but what she's doing is she's adding, like, bumpers on the front and end and, like, doing some, like, additional – authory like behind the scenes kind of stuff huh all right i've heard of a lot of authors putting out their their books out there as as like that you know in a serialized yeah. form um but yeah this is new yeah yeah so def- definitely check it out it looks pretty cool all righty also want to give a nice shout out to our wonderful sponsors kobo writing life uh, kobo writing life empowers you the author to take your self-publishing career into your own hands so remember if you're going wide and you don't want to have any exclusivity Head on over to KoboWritingLife.com, sign up, and check it out. So we have, uh, this is a Tuesday, so this is uh, definitely something that kind of uh, came up at the last minute, and we felt like we, uh, we really needed to get this in the rotation. Who are we talking to today, JD? It's this new up-and-coming guy out of the UK. Um, his name is Lee Child. I think I've heard of him. Yeah, he's he's pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm thrilled that he was finally able to get on the podcast. I've been bugging you know people forever trying to make this one happen, and he's just he's such a, a wealth of knowledge. And you know anybody that's gone to Thriller Fest, you know he's he's one of those guys that was you know always out front, you know always available. He he went to every cocktail party, he was at the bar, he was in the hallways. He he didn't hide. A lot of a lot of authors go to Thriller Fest, the big name ones, and you only see them long enough for them to give their little speech, and then they disappear. Uh, but he he was you know his his face was visible through the entire event and. You know, it's because he likes the process just as much as he, you know, he's a fan of reading and, and, and writing and he likes to teach, you know, just as much like he's just a, a big fan of the entire thing. And um, it's, it's great that he was willing to come on. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, at this point in his career, he doesn't need to be helping like uh, with Mystery Writer Association handbooks. Like I think it that speaks of volumes about who he yeah, is. Yeah, I thought that was really you cool know? too. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, absolutely. So let's not waste any time here. Here he is, Lee Child. Well, I, I figured uh, I got to I got to address the elephant in the room uh, and get that out of the way first, which is uh, how does Jack Reacher feel about Andrew Grant? <laughs> well, in a funny way, uh, you know, Jack Reacher is Andrew Grant a little <laughs> bit because inevitably, I'm, I think fiction is always by autobiographical in some kind of wish fulfillment way, you know. Very few writers put in a main character that is not somewhat based on the, their dreams of themselves or they think that they're somehow rooted in themselves. And Andrew and I are, are, are very close and very similar. Um, you know, I don't want to deny him his individuality as a person, obviously, but we're, you know, we're brothers. We're very similar. We share the same DNA. So in as much as I'm Jack Reacher, so is he. And so... What I always say about Reacher is I'm the only person in the world that Reacher is scared of. (laughs) Uh, Because I could have him do a whole book wearing a pink ballet tutu if I wanted to. And so now Andrew's in the same boat. So, uh, 
yeah, Richard is respectful of both of us. That's good to hear. <laughs> We're here today to talk about how to write a mystery. Uh, th this new book that uh, is coming out today as, as we air this episode, really exciting. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it is, it's for mystery writers, but I think it really applies to anyone who's, who's writing genre fiction. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project came to be? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing it on this particular podcast because, you know, this is a, a writer's podcast and therefore we can be completely honest and specific about it. And um, it came about because Mystery Writers of America is fundamentally a, a service organization. Uh, its origins a long time ago now, I can't remember, 75, 76 years ago. Its origins were virtually as a kind of trades union for genre writers, particularly in the mystery or the pulp field. Um, the original thought was uh, murder, or no, they said crime doesn't pay enough. And so it was always about supporting writers. And one of the strands that we do is this handbook periodically. I'm not sure how many we've done four, I think. And so it, it probably averages one a decade or more. And it was time for a new one because the last one was done by Sue Grafton. I, I, I'm not sure when, 10 or 15 years ago. And it was terrific uh, for its time. But as we all know, a lot has happened in the last 15 years. Uh, publishing is unrecognizable. The market is unrecognizable. There are, there's a lot more competition. There's a lot more pressure. So we felt it was time for another one that was sort of updated and a little bit more current. And, uh, and then, of course, you get into, you get into the, the theory of it. You know, the title is wonderful, How to Write a Mystery. Uh, but we all know that it's not enough to read read a book. You know, it's not enough to pick up a handbook and think you're going to be able to do it. So it, writer to writer, I would say the title is a little uh, ambitious, uh, a little plain. You know, you can't have a thousand word title which really lays out the realities of it. But the way to become a writer of anything is first of all to read for decades, you know, read everything, uh, especially in your favorite genre, of course, but just everything, read everything you possibly can for decades. And then what you should do is start and you should listen, go to conventions, go to uh, meetings, book signings, anything you can, and just pick up little bits of insider information or gossip or listen to somebody who's taken 20 years to figure something out and they're telling you about it. And this happens from time to time in bars, in panels, in hotels, uh, in, in sessions here and there, seminars, sometimes online. And if you spend 10 or 20 years listening to all that kind of stuff, you are gonna get a database of what seems to work most often what seems to fail most often, you're going to get a pretty, a pretty straight idea. And so the idea of the handbook was to save people those 10 or 20 years of eavesdropping in convention bars, you know, just get the authors to write the stuff down so that it can be read and consulted and, and checked 
uh, on a sort of ongoing basis. So the idea is to compress it, really. You, if you've already done your lifetime of reading, if you pick up how to write a mystery handbook, you'll get a compressed version of what you might eavesdrop over many, many years. And I think that is that is its point and that is its value. And of course, a lot of the uh, advice is completely contradictory. I mean, I, I'm in there following uh, Jeffrey Deaver. Now, Jeffrey Deaver is a terrific writer and a good friend of mine, just charming guy, lovely man. Uh, but he outlines to a degree that would just make me want to slip my wrists. <laughs> uh, so he has uh, an essay, why it is essential to outline. And that is followed immediately by my essay, which says never outline. Trust yourself. Trust the spontaneity of the process. And so, in a way, the handbook shows there is no one answer. There's never a definitive method. What you've got to do is read all these various competing points of view and see where your own personality best fits in. I love the juxtaposition of those two essays in particular <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you guys both used two words in the title, always outline and never outline. It, it just sort of, it, it set the tone, I think, for the whole collection. It, it was masterful. I want to dig into that a little bit, though, because in that essay, you're not necessarily eschewing planning or pre-thought. I, I think what you were, at least what I interpreted as was that you kind of have an idea of where you want to go, but you don't necessarily write it down in a specific sequence. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I to say never outline, of course, is a dramatic title for the, for the essay, and it's supposed to be thought-provoking, and it's supposed to be presenting an alternative point of view for the reader to figure out which they feel drawn to. Uh, but never outline. The, the point of the essay is that you can't do that because if you are a reader in the genre, which of course we all are, and you've read thousands of books all your life, you kind of build up a mental database that, that then becomes a subconscious outline. And what I'm suggesting you do is you trust that because the danger that I see and the argument that I have with Deaver is that if you do this very detailed outline that is basically scene by scene or beat by beat, then that is great. But is it good enough? Are you closing off the spontaneous uh, byways and digressions or, or the, the new ideas that suddenly pop up halfway through the book? Are you closing that off? Are you doing yourself a disservice? And so my approach is always to just see what happens. Just trust the process. Trust your own brain, which means, you know, you've read every plot there is. I mean, seriously, when was the last time that you, you read something that was utterly new to you in terms of plot? It very rarely happens. I mean, we've been telling stories for, I don't know how long, 100,000 years. And all of the all of the stories are basically the same. And the point I make in that essay is when I was a little kid, I was just um, 11, I think. I'd started at, at grammar school. And I went to one of those English schools that is actually the school I went to uh, is 224 years older than the United States. <laughs> you know, it's one of those classical English schools. And so at the age of 11, we 
we were reading in Latin, and I was reading Ovid's Life of Theseus in Latin, which is one of those classic mythic tales. Uh, reading that in class at school and on the bus home, I was reading Dr. No by Ian Fleming and in English. And of course, those two are exactly the same story. Every, every element of, that, of those two stories are identical, many thousands of years apart. And so there are no new plots. There's, there's really no new wrinkle that you can ever invent anymore. And so you've read all of that, just trust it. Just see what happens. Something will happen. And your brain will work it out for you. The best, the most intriguing combination. You'll steal a bit from a 3,000-year-old story. You'll steal a bit from a story two years ago. It'll work really well. It will get you the effect you want. Uh, so, and I do worry that if you start out with a long laundry list of scenes that you've got to do, you are kind of closing yourself off to the wonderful accidental discoveries that you can make as you go along. And I've always benefited from that. Um, I mean, it's privately hilarious to me that a lot of the stuff in my books that people like the best, you know, they say, oh, I love that bit where, or that bit was so clever. I mean, those were simply either accidental or they were they were space fillers. Uh, in my first book, I remember I needed a paragraph of description. And so I had this guy wearing those sunglasses that go from light to dark, you know, depending on, on the sun. And that was simply just to put some meat on the bone in that particular paragraph. And I completely forgot about it. And then about 30, 40 pages later, it suddenly struck me, wow, yeah, I see how I can use that in terms of the next bit of action or the next reveal. And that, that is the benefit of not outlining. You, you constantly supply yourself with spontaneous new directions to go in. Whereas I fear that if I had outlined that whole book, I would have missed that part completely. Has, has Jeffrey or any of your other writer friends tried to, ever tried to convince you to outline and did you ever try it? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're constantly back and forth, uh, you know, either genuinely curious or else just trash talking. My friend Joe Finder and I, we, for, for a project for one of the other organizations, we did a short story together with our two main characters as the heroes. And he is a big time outliner. He needs to know what's going to happen next. And I hate to know what's going to happen next. And so that was a real friction between us, actually. We did it back and forth. You know, we wrote a bit, sent it by email. And Joe would email me back and say, yeah, this is great. Uh, what do you think happens next? And I'm like, I've got no idea. You know, that's <laughs> up to you. Make something happen. So he didn't reveal what was happening next to you then? No, he... he, he uh, he, he tried to do it my way, you know, he didn't tell me anything about it. And of course, I kept throwing spanners in the works because it wasn't going the direction he thought it would be. I love that. Yeah, you mentioned at, at the top of the conversation that uh, a lot of what's been in publishing for, for years has sort of uh, gone away and that it's, it's unrecognizable. And, and one of the areas I thought was really thought provoking was this idea of the stuntman jumping onto the the, the, the tent and on each corner that you have mystery, thriller, crime fiction, and suspense. And I'm wondering how you influence where your stuntman lands. Are you pushing him towards one of those corners? 
I'm not at all. No, I mean, I all I all I hope is that he lands somewhere on the back, you know, and doesn't <laughs> splatter on the sidewalk. And um, it's a it's a matter of interest to me. Where where will this story go? Will it be more of a thriller? Will it be more of a a crime fiction book with some sociological aspect? Will it be a straightforward mystery where all we care about is who did it? Um, I'm as interested to find out as anybody. And so my point basically with that was that the trade as a whole and fans and sort of super fans and reviewers tend to have very narrow definitions of the genres. And what I was suggesting was we shouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, you know, what is the difference between a mystery and a thriller and crime fiction and suspense? Uh, let's not worry about it. Just do something in, in that basic area, which is really where all the great books are. You can't really say the great books are all one thing or the other. They, they're all a blend of those four characteristics with uh, one or other of the characteristics probably getting a little more prominence than the others. But basically, all those elements are in a good book. Mm. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting thought exercise, too, to, to think about not worrying too much about, about where that story is going to land. But I wonder, and maybe from your experience, are there any top-down pressures that influence that, say, from an editor or a publisher? Well, editors and publishers, uh, I mean, I, I, I take a slightly different view between the two of them. Editors are very much about the, the author as a person and the work as an individual manuscript this year, whereas the publisher tends to be much more strategic and so, you know, they've seen, let's say, they've seen 20 Jack Reacher novels become bestsellers, big, reliable sellers. They would be very nervous if the 21st was something completely different. Whereas the editor might be quite excited because the editor has a relationship with the writer as a creative individual and would be kind of interested to see what you come up with, but it would be commercial suicide. And so the publisher, the top-down pressure is kind of there but for me in in particular for me it was that's never a problem because i recognize that the writer is a servant of the reader it's up to the reader to decide what they want and it's the writer it's up to the writer to provide it and it is a two-way street and it is utterly perverse in my opinion if if you establish yourself as doing one thing that the reader loves you were then in a self-indulgent way go and do something different it disappoints the reader it's just stupid it's like you know you need a certain amount of reliability in life if you are the fan or the consumer uh, you know if i'm walking from the subway across the street to yankee stadium and i'm you know walking across that uh, plaza outside and i'm going through the turnstile i'm not wondering, am I going to see hockey tonight? Am I going to see basketball? I know I'm going to see baseball. Whether it will be a great one, I don't know. But I know what the fundamental proposition is. And I think that's very important for readers. They, they want what they want, and it is up to the author to give it. And any one writer does not have the responsibility to cover every single aspect of the genre. As you can see from the handbook, uh, we've got 
dozens and dozens and dozens of really great writers here who are all completely different. And so if you get bored with Jack Reacher, let's say, it's not up to me to give you the alternative. You can take it from 99 other writers. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'd like to dig into a, a couple of these essays and, and ask you some questions about them. Uh, Meg Gardner's Nine Things a Thriller Needs, number eight on her list was plot twists. So I'd love to know how you handle that, given the fact that you're kind of writing into the dark on, on plot. Yeah, I love Meg's essay, which, I mean, she is a great writer, a very smart woman. And uh, I love how it's nine things. You know, she makes the point at the beginning of the essay that she figured it would be 10 things, but, but compression is really important with Thriller. Don't waste any verbiage don't waste the reader's time so as an illustration of that she compressed the 10 things to nine things and so right there in the title is one of the keys get rid of the extraneous stuff and um yeah plot twists if you if you have no outline uh plot plot twists just have to be spontaneous and organic they have to just pop into your head which is a very superficial way of saying, as, as I've indicated before, what you're actually doing is drawing on decades of reading and the type of plot twist or the manner in which it's introduced or whatever, you will have picked up years ago, maybe decades ago, maybe from one of the classic books, um, the type of twist or, or how to introduce it. So you've just got to lay back and relax and open your mind and just let it happen to you. Uh, I think you've got to engage your reader side of your brain as you're writing, because as a reader, which of course we all are much more than writers. I, I write one book a year, but I read hundreds. So I'm much more of a reader than a writer and the reader part of your brain subliminally just nudges you to, say, come on, something has to happen here, something surprising, something that, that sets us off in a new direction. And so the plot twist should really happen organically. Of course, to some extent, even if you're not outlining, you're going to have a brief sort of 10-second elevator pitch for the book where you say to yourself, uh, yeah, this happens and that happens, and it looks like it's this thing, but actually it's that thing. And so sometimes you, you are heading for a, a kind of fundamental plot twist that you know is going to happen. But when exactly and how exactly, I prefer to let it happen spontaneously. And I don't think it needs to happen at the end or towards the end. It, could, it can happen anywhere. It can be really, really good if it happens very early. Um, a couple of my books, what you would describe as the major twist happens at the very beginning. And uh, so, yeah, it's just about things are never what they seem to be. And uh, the, the more that you can keep the reader slightly on their toes without being gratuitously weird about it. Um, somebody once said that the best endings and the best twists are both surprising and inevitable. And if you can put those two things together in a convincing way, then uh, you've nailed it. Yeah, well said. Do you write the elevator pitches for your books before you start writing them? I don't write it, but I sort of have a vague idea. Um, 
you know, sometimes I have a line of dialogue that I know that I, I, I will put in at some point, two thirds of the way through or towards the end or something to give me an emotional target for the book. Sometimes I have a kind of, uh, I develop usually about halfway through the book, I'm, I'm, I'm bumbling along and I, I suddenly think, yeah, okay, this is not what we think it is. Uh, several of my books, for instance, one in particular, I remember Gone Tomorrow. I had this beautiful woman in it that I absolutely assumed would be the love interest and probably, you know, reach his colleague on, on the investigation and it would be a two-hander sort of thing. And uh, you don't want to dive into that straight away. So I was assuming, yeah, that, you know, a third of the way through or half of the way through this will emerge. And then I just thought, no, you know what, let's make her the bad guy. And... Um, that kind of spontaneity works really well because it mirrors real life. You know, we, you meet a person, you don't know, you don't know them at all. You can be superficially attracted to them. They can seem like a really nice person. Then they can turn out to be bad or they can turn out to be super good. You know, you just got no idea. And I think that again, that's part of the peril of outlining that you take away that discovery that is so human. Um, and uh, the same principle answers a lot of questions about how much backstory to introduce and so on. Uh, you know, if you and I met for the first time and went out for a beer or something like that, we would not sit there for four hours and info dump our entire biography on each other. I would hope not. <laughs> no, of course not. In the real world, you get to know each other very slowly over many, many years. And you may never get to know a person 100%. In fact, you're pretty much guaranteed never to do that. And so same thing should apply for books, mirror human life. You know, you do not know at the beginning what looks like a good person can turn out awful. What looks like an awful person can turn out sort of grudgingly okay toward the end. Uh, so I prefer that kind of spontaneity, absolutely. Yeah, and in a related essay, Tess Gerritsen uh, talked about the medical thriller, and she said that you know you don't need to be a doctor to write a medical thriller. Uh, so how much research do you do, or how much research do you feel is necessary in genre fiction? Well, I think that's very much dependent on on the specific genre. You know, as as Tess Gerritsen says i mean she actually is a doctor and so it comes fairly effortlessly for her to make it uh convincing but also accessible uh, so she does that really well and i think if you are going to do medical or if you are going to do you know they've got a thriller at uh, at an atomic research laboratory or something you've got to keep it convincing in terms of this scientific type of dialogue without being impenetrable to the reader. And so that's a separate skill altogether. How do you combine those two things? But principally in terms of research, it's really interesting what Tess says, you don't have to be a doctor, which is just as well, because otherwise none of us would really write anything because we only know what we know. And the whole point is to expand that outward. And that is, that is my advice for, for that kind of research is that we all do have our day jobs or have had, you know, we've all worked in some kind of organization. If you work for a, a corporation, it's not that much of a leap to imagine that it's actually the CIA, which is 
above all else, kind of corporate. It's kind of institutionalized. You have hierarchies, you have bosses, you have performance reviews, you have all that kind of stuff that everybody has in their normal life. So you just take it and you expand it. And the same thing for fears and emotions and so on. Um, you know, I'm a parent, lots of people are parents, and practically all of us have had that split-second panic. You're, you're in a shopping mall or something, and you look one direction, then you look back and your kid is missing. Your kid is not there anymore. And you feel that flash of horror and panic. And it lasts only a split second, probably, because you look across and there she is looking in a store window and everything's fine after one second. But what you have to do is remember that one second and turn it into one day or one week or one year. Uh, in other words, take the natural organic feelings that you've got and expand them into the space you need for the book. So research can be can be superficial and I think ought to be because one of the genre demands is, is regular production. You know, the standard used to be a book a year and if anything, it's getting faster than that. And if you tackle a new subject, you know, Jack Reacher goes to Los Alamos uh, where the atom bombs are invented or something, then I would have to do a tremendous amount of research very fast because I've got to get the book finished this year. And the problem with that is it becomes indigestible. You do not yet know which parts are important and which parts are not. And so my, my best advice is, yeah, a little bit of superficial research. Uh, you know, if you're approaching a medical thriller, then yeah, you've got to know what drug does what and so on. Uh, you've got to know what a hypodermic needle is, for instance. But you don't need to do a PhD in medicine during that year because if you do, your book is going to be too stodgy because you don't know yet what's truly important and what isn't. So what I like to do is rely on stuff that I already know and, um, and because if you've digested it for years or it's a lifetime thing with you, then you you do understand which part of the iceberg needs to be showing and which part can be hidden. That's great advice. Uh, I would love to ask you one more question as we kind of wrap up the conversation. Uh, you are a veteran of the industry. You've seen a lot of things. Uh, what's on the horizon for publishing? What do you see in the near future? Uh, well, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about it is how nice all the people are. And I have to say, you know, absolutely, the book trade, the publishing people, bookstore people, the other writers are always wonderful. And this is illustrated by this handbook because these people gave up a lot of time, you know, did fantastic essays for this book for no reason other than kindness and goodwill. So it's been a pleasure to be in, in the mixture of lovely people. That puts us at a slight disadvantage because we're not, you know, sharks or alligators thrashing around in the pool eating everything else. We, we tend to be pretty nice and maybe a little bit soft when it comes to things like piracy and so on. So we need to keep our eye on that. But fundamentally, my radical long-term feeling about publishing is that there is always insatiable demand for story. And the question is, how will it be delivered? 
And we're seeing two migrations right now. One is to long-form narrative television, which is kind of outside of the traditional area in which we operate. But the second that I think is going to be huge in the future is audiobooks. I think that we're going to return, actually, to our prehistory because story has always been vital to Homo sapiens. And, of course, for almost all the time, it has been oral. It, people like you and me would have been sitting on a cave floor listening to a storyteller. We did that for 100,000 years. And then people like you and me, regular folk, we have been reading off a page for only about 150 years uh, en masse, you know, the, the normal person. So this is a very short blip in terms of reading off a page. And what we've got now technologically is a, is a generation or two generations of people utterly habituated to wearing headphones and downloading files constantly. And I think we will return to, to audiobooks, which will still require writing, obviously, uh, but possibly writing in a slightly different way. I think audio is served better by a slight difference than on the page. Uh, but I think that's going to be the mass medium of the future, um, which will be really no different. I mean, I don't care how anybody hears my story. The publisher can hire Scarlett Johansson to come around and whisper it in your ear, as far as I'm concerned. As long as you hear the story, it doesn't matter to me how it gets there. And I, so I think we are going to see a shakeup in terms of, of the vehicle. Um, the storytelling is eternal and will always remain eternal. But we've got to be nimble about the vehicle. And we've got to be tough enough to make sure we get a good deal out of it. Because again, returning to MWA's core mission, crime doesn't pay enough. And so we've got to make sure, I mean, I'm fine, but the starting out people in the Middle East writers, you know, they need, they need, they need help. They need uh, enforcement. And hopefully MWA can help with that. All right. Lee Child, uh, Zach. Let's go to you first. Uh, the, Lee, uh, Lee is uh, much aligned with JD when it comes to uh, craft and process. Uh, I wonder you how you interpret that. You took my line, right? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think JD is, uh, no pun intended, but plotting against us. Oh, uh, I like that. <laughs> to get all these, these pantsers on here because he knows that we're really meticulous plotters. But <laughs> as, as soon as they sent us an ARC of this book, I, I shot it over to, to Patterson. I was like, see, see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he has not responded. <laughs> I do like, but, though, I, I like that um, – they put those two essays in that book back to back because I think one thing that happens, like I see this, you know, when I talk to newer writers a lot, you know, they talk about on writing obviously comes up and, and Stephen King pretty, you know, distinctively or, you know, says in that book that he doesn't believe in plotting. And, um, and, and so a lot of people feel like that's what they should do because Stephen King does it. I, I like that. I like that they had those two essays back to back in this book where, it's like you absolutely need to outline and you absolutely don't need to outline, you know, because you get both perspectives. Because I think it, at the end of the day, it's about everyone finding their own process and what works for them. And 
um, you know, for some people, they want to do that whole uh, discovery writing thing where they just kind of have an idea and they roll with it. And some people want to know everything. And then there's people who are kind of in between like I am where I want to have a pretty good backbone, but also allow myself to discover some stuff along the way. So uh, it's just it's, it's just always interesting to hear the, the different ideas and those process and where those perspectives come from. Well, it's funny because, you know, he, you know, he laid out his, his, you know, his thinking on the entire thing. And like, you kind of walk away from that, like, yeah, I, I can probably pants a novel. Like, I don't, I don't need to outline. Like, he's, he's right. He's right. You know, we, we could, we interviewed Jeffrey Deaver before we go back, we could go back and play that. And like, you walk out of that one, like, yeah, no, you should really use an outline. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and like you just summed up, I mean, it really comes down to personal preference. It comes down yeah. to what works for you. And I think Lee kind of hit it on the head. Like, I think in a lot of ways it comes back to how much you've read in your life. You know, if, yeah. if you, because I, I, I've never, you know, really outlined. I don't really think about those things. You know, my, my wife will tear apart my books and she'll say, well, here's where your third act starts and this happens and that happens. And like, I don't think of that structure when I'm writing it, but I've read so much, you know, I, I get to a certain point. I'm like, this needs to happen here. And and if it doesn't happen there, like I know that it feels off or I'll get maybe a chapter beyond that. And I'm like, no, this doesn't feel right. Something else needs to go. You know, you just instinctively understand that because you've seen that blueprint so many times subconsciously, you know, it carries over. And, and I think that's where it really comes from. Yeah, that was really reinforced uh, to me with Lee in that it's not it's not an absence of structure when you pants, you know, what Lee was I, what I think my interpretation, what Lee said was like, and like you said, J.D., you have the outline, you have that yeah. in your, it's just in your head. It's not on the paper. And, and it's not just like a complete throw everything to the wind and see what happens. Like you, you feel it, you know where things come. And I think that's an important to, uh, point to remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I love, I love that, that it's just it, a lot of that stuff is very intuitive if you read a lot and, and all that. And, and, and that's the truth. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, you know, Jay and I were, mu or were musicians and, you know, spent a lot of time in bands and it's the same thing. It's like, you kind of know where the chorus is supposed to go or where the bridge is supposed to be and stuff like that. It's, it's very, very similar, you know, so. Well, I am finding, you know, I've, I've done so many book doctor projects and ghostwriting things in the past and working with Patterson. It, an outline is definitely helpful when you're working with somebody else to be able to communicate that. And I, I'm guessing, yeah, even yeah. as a mu musician, like if you're going to sit down and you're going to learn, learn a new song, if somebody can put the sheet music in front of you, that makes it a thousand times easier, I'm, I'm guessing, just to have that there. But, you know, it, when you're working by yourself and 99.9% and .9 of the time, that's, that's what we're doing. You know, just figure out what works best for you and just run with it. I think it's also important not to get so entrenched and start drinking your own Kool-Aid. Like, I, you know, I, I'm, we'll probably talk more about this, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to dabble in, in the Amazon Vela space. And that is by design. Like I'm approaching it. Like I'm going to write a scene a week and I, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be professionally edited. It's, and it's not going to, I'm not going to plot it out. Like I'm going to see where the story takes me. And, and I think it's important to experiment and to and to try things. If you think you're a pantser, it's good to sometimes try and plot things out. And if you're a plotter, sometimes it's good just to sit down on a screen and see what happens. Like, I think that's all part of the process. Well, my biggest concern, honestly, with something like Vela, and I don't want to get too far off topic, is I'm not sure who owns what when everything is said and done with a platform like that. And Because you know, with uh, Patreon, if you read the, the fine print of their agreement, technically they've got ownership of that document. Um, or they can make a claim to it. And that's enough to scare away the film and TV studios and, and other people that might get involved later. So depending on what you plan to do with it, I think I would dig into that, I guess, is what I'm, I'm getting at. Because I, yeah. I, I don't know if it's similar to Patreon, then it, it might be a red flag. If, I, if not, then... My hunch no is it's going to be more... It's in KDP. 
It's in your right. KDP dashboard. I'm guessing that's how it's going to be treated, although they don't have a terms of service up yet. So, yeah, I think it's it's definitely something to, to read the fine print on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back to Lee, uh, Ian Fleming. Like, if anybody has not read the original James Bond books, go back and read those, please. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I read those when I was a kid, and, like, I haven't read them in, in a really long time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out there and scoop them all back up again. I totally forgot how good those are. And, 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 and that framework that he's talking about, that storytelling, like, all of that is, is there. Um, it's uh, fantastic books. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And, and I also think it's uh, – even if you don't write mystery, you need to read this handbook. I mean, it's yeah. it's really good. Uh, there's um, you know several writers Inc. alum are in there, uh, but you know we, we it's every essay is just so thoughtful and generous. That's the vibe I got from this. It's it's really generous. All of these writers who contributed are doing not doing this because you know it's going to earn them a ton of money. Like they're they're doing it because they want to help other writers, and uh, it, it's a great resource. Strongly recommend it. Yeah, it's it's great to see someone like Lee Child who. Uh, will uh, obviously been so successful to pass his knowledge, you know, through the book, come on, come on this podcast. I mean, it was, it was an awesome interview and uh, yeah, very, very grateful. We were able to have him on the, um, what he said about audio too, like that really struck home, Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and a lot of it comes back to what he was saying. Like that's, that's how storytelling started, you know, literally as, as an audio experience. And it seems like it's, it's kind of going full circle. Um, you know, somebody still has to create it. That's never going to go away, but we, we definitely as a people seem to be coming back to that. Yeah, absolutely. So what wonderful human, great writer, uh, so generous. And, uh, we're just so grateful to have him on the show. So I uh, hope you guys all enjoyed that. Um, JD, who do we got next week? Oh, I'm going to butcher this name. This is our, our new Just Jean. Um, Carolyn Kepnes, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, she's the author of the, the book You, uh, Hidden Bodies, um, it, the TV series New on Netflix, or You, I'm sorry. Like, I'm completely flubbing this. Um, the show, <laughs> caught on the name. <laughs> yeah, I got totally caught up on the name. The show You on Netflix. So if, if you watch that, she's wrote the uh, her debut novel was the basis for that um, particular story. And she's got a new book out called You Love Me. Um, it just released about two weeks ago. Um, and she's going to come on and talk about that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we won't give any spoilers about the story, but if you haven't read the book or watched the Netflix series, you might want to check it out. It's pretty cool. Yeah, maybe she'll tell us how to pronounce her name. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.